I'll begin straight away because we've got a lot of material to cover. Uh, first, my thanks to Professors Kevin Dow, Lawrence White, and Bennett McCollum for being here today. Congratulations and thanks to Jim Dorn. It's my pleasure to participate for the first time in a Cato Monetary Conference, though it's been an institution here for many years. And I'm very pleased to have George Selgin welcome, uh, uh, welcomed to Cato uh, by all our colleagues. He's, uh, I didn't refer to Jim Dorn as my, uh, my oldest colleague, but I'm happy to refer to George Selgin as my newest colleague here, here at Cato. Uh, my name's Jim Harper. I'm, I'm uh, formerly Director of Information Policy Studies here at Cato, was, was in that position for the last decade. And earlier this year, I, I took senior fellow status uh, so that I could join the uh, Bitcoin Foundation as its global policy council. And I'll say just briefly that uh, Bitcoin has no end to public policy issues. Uh, my, my summary in, very, in brief is that the protocol is strong, but the CTCI tends to be weak. CTCI stands for Chair to Computer Interface. The human institutions are weak, and they need to strengthen uh, for certain. We're talking today about the Bitcoin revolution, and I, I mused a, a few moments to myself earlier about uh, what revolutions are. Revolutions are, are the culmination of changes in political, social, and economic affairs. Uh, revolutions are typically, I think, identified in retrospect. I wondered to myself, anticipating this panel, whether the American Revolution was announced as such in advance. Did the revolutionaries announce their uh, their plans for an American revolution. Uh, but today, certainly, many people are announcing a Bitcoin revolution. Uh, some of that is exhortation to others to join this revolution. Some of that is self-promotion or promotion. I think it's fair to say that this panel is titled the Bitcoin revolution uh, as a way of promoting the panel. Uh, and it looks like it's succeeded adequately well because many of you stayed past the, the opening keynote this morning. Thank you. Uh, Bitcoin is nothing if not a fascinating development. Revolutionary or not, we can put aside. Uh, it's an internet protocol, like email is a protocol, that to some degree, I think, sheds the premise that money has to require some original physical instantiation. Almost all, well, all of our lives and through all, uh, all of history that I know of, uh, money has started with a physical instantiation. Rarely, uh, or less and less often, do we uh, rely on the physical instantiation of dollars today. Bitcoin dispenses entirely with the idea that there's a physical object required in a monetary system. It moves us closer to actualizing, literally, Hayek's description of money and prices as a communications and coordination medium. Before introducing our panel, I'll, I'll take a brief moment, as I do very often when I speak to, to audiences of all types uh, in the U.S. and Europe, to talk about what Bitcoin is and how it works. I think most of you have the basic idea that Bitcoin is online cash. But how it works is, is, is sort of essential to understand. And it, the more people understand how it works, and I won't take you into the cryptography because I'm not a cryptographer, uh, you, you start to gather some of the real genius of it and some of the real potential not only uh, for money, but for other administrative systems. Uh, many, many potential uses of Bitcoin are out there. So I, I often use the example of PayPal to illustrate what, what Bitcoin is. If you think about it for a minute, most of you probably have, PayPal isn't a series of shoeboxes in which they keep the money that their, that their users have, have given to them. 
when Jim Harper sends to Jim Dorn some money through PayPal, PayPal doesn't take uh, 20 bucks out of, of Jim Harper's shoebox and put it into the Jim Dorn shoebox. What they do is make a notation in their records of the fact that the funds formerly with Jim Harper now rest with Jim Dorn in their records. It's essentially a large ledger system. Bitcoin is a ledger system. It's a protocol for a ledger system. Um, much like email is a protocol for mail, to some degree it replaced our having to lick envelopes and put stamps on things and drop them in a box and, and wait for somebody to deliver them to the, the recipient. Bitcoin, the protocol, is a ledger protocol. And when I conduct it, when I start a Bitcoin transaction, I publish it to a, a nearby Bitcoin node, and there are thousands of them running around the world at any time. The Bitcoin nodes propagate these transactions around the world. They check the transaction to see that it's valid. Did I have the proper key to sign the transaction to show that I had authority to transfer the Bitcoin the transaction wants to transfer? Do the Bitcoin reside at the Bitcoin address that I, that I associated the transaction with, etc.? Are they available for spending? And the nodes hold on to these transactions, these proposed transactions I, as I refer to them, and miners come along and on average, once every 10 minutes, they've swept up all the new transactions, the newly proposed transactions, tied them together cryptographically and into a new ledger page or block, and tied that ledger page to the, to the most recent prior ledger page in the, in, the, in the ledger or blockchain. The miners are rewarded uh, in small measure and, or decent measure uh, by the issuance of new, of new Bitcoins. So the metaphor of them being miners, they aren't actually going in a finding Existing, existing Bitcoins as a true miner does gold, but new Bitcoins are created when they contribute this, this uh, benefit to the Bitcoin ecosystem by, by wrapping new transactions cryptographically and tying them to the previous ledger page. Uh, presently, there are about 13.5 million Bitcoins in existence. Uh, according to the protocol, uh, there will be 21 million when the last Satoshi is mined in about 2140. The current market capitalization of Bitcoins against the dollar is about 4.6 billion, uh, having reached a high uh, la la the latter part of last year at 13.9 billion. Uh, recently, the number of transactions conducted using Bitcoin on a seven-day moving average uh, has reached new highs at about 85,000 per day. Those numbers seem rather large, but I think they're really rather small uh, compared to most monetary and payment systems. But... Uh, that's a, that's a sort of summary of what's going on in the Bitcoin ecosystem. Your purpose of coming here was not to hear me talk, and I apologize for going as long as I have. Uh, you have the, the, the longer bios of our August speakers uh, in your packet, so I'll, I'll, I'll defer to those and just briefly introduce, uh, introduce our panelists in, order, in the order that they're, they're on the program and then ask them each to come up and speak for about 10 or 15 minutes before we go to Q&A, of which I think there will be quite a lot. So first we'll hear from Ke Kevin Dowd, Professor of Finance and Economics at Durham University. After that, Lawrence White, Professor of Economics at George Mason University. And finally, Bennett McCallum, Professor of Economics at Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, folks watching online, liberally use the hashtag CatoMC14. I will be checking to see if I can um, uh, use some of your questions in the Q&A that follows the session. So please first, welcome Professor Dowd. Thank you, Jim. Um, I'd like to first off wish you all a very good morning and emphasize that the paper on which my talk is based is joint with uh, Martin Hutchinson. He can't join us today, unfortunately. Um, I'd like to start where, where Jim left off. Uh, Bitcoin is the most radical innovation in the monetary space for a long time. 
It's an entirely private system that does not depend on trust, except trust in the network. So it runs itself. So the key principle is distributed trust, which maintains the integrity of the system. And we can well understand the attractions of such a system, a tamper-proof money supply, no discretion, no QE, no central bank. There is, however, just one small problem, and that is, despite its success today, Bitcoin is not sustainable. This means it will collapse. As Herb Stein once said, what cannot go on will stop. Let's go back to basics. As a first pass, we can compare Bitcoin to this stone money in Milton Friedman's case study. In this story, the people of the island of Yap in Micronesia used large, used large round limestone disks as money. These were too heavy to move, so when ownership was to be transferred, the owner would publicly announce the change in ownership. So the stone would remain where it was, and the islanders would maintain a collective memory of the ownership history of the stones. So both the stone money and Bitcoin share a critical feature. Both operate via a decentralized collective memory. And if I can see if I can get this. Oh, sorry, thank you. To work. Yeah. So basically, those are the principles that Jim's just outlined. Um, Bitcoin's a type of e-cash system. So there's no central body to authorize transactions, just the network to validate them. And it's this competition between Bitcoin miners that maintains the integrity of the system. So this leads us to Bitcoin's value proposition as follows. I've summarized it in this slide. The first point is that the system does not depend on trust, just distributed trust. The second point is it has no single point of failure, so it cannot be brought down by knocking out any particular entity. The third point is a high degree of anonymity. So bottom line here is the Bitcoin is a dream come true for anarchist criminals and proponents of private money. There's also a strong element of incentive compatibility, and underlying that, the security comes from the, the Bitcoin protocol, which is like the constitution of the system. So these features ensure that players play by the rules and that Bitcoins are not overissued. However, there's a fundamental contradiction in the system, and that is that it requires atomistic competition on the part of the miners, but the mining industry is characterized by large economies of scale. In fact, they are so large that the, the industry is a natural monopoly. And obviously, atomistic competition and a natural monopoly are inconsistent. The inbuilt centralization tendencies of the one mean that the, the firms in the industry will get bigger and bigger until effectively there is an actual monopoly. Now, the two reasons uh, to believe this, the first is based on risk aversion. If two miners merge their operations, they get the same expected return but they obtain a return with a higher probability. So that means if it's, it's worthwhile for any two miners to converge, it's worthwhile for any group of miners to converge. We end up with a single miner. The second reason is even stronger, and that is the negative externalities of Bitcoin competitive mining. The point here is the bottom line is that individual miners do not take into account the negative cost externalities of their, that their own mining activities impose on other miners. So you get an equilibrium in which there's excessive resources devoted to mining, excessive bandwidth, excessive energy, excessive investment in computing resources. To give an idea of this, in the early days, a home PC could produce hundreds of Bitcoins a day. By the early days, I mean two or three years ago. Uh, that's ancient history. But now an advanced mining computer can, can expect to mine only a fraction of a Bitcoin a day. 
So we estimate that the energy power devoted to Bitcoin mining has increased by a factor of over 10 billion. Bear in mind that most of the system uh, could be maintained on a single server. So most of this is waste. Now the implications of these centralizing tendencies are totally destructive. They destroy every single element of its value proposition. So one by one, all the dominoes fall down. So first off, decentralized trust. Once the individual miners coalesce into a dominant player, then that entity has control over the system. It decides which transactions are to be deemed valid and which are not. We then have to trust that entity not to abuse its system. And we're back to the old trust model that Bitcoin tried to escape from. If we go back to the island of stone money, imagine if everyone woke up one morning unable to remember who owned what stones. But then one helpful individual offers to remember for everybody. So you imagine how well that would work. So by this point, the dominant player has taken control and it becomes the monarch of the system. It's still a constitutional monarch because you still have the protocol. Once that player, dominant player emerges, it becomes a point of failure for the system as a whole. So one could imagine Uncle Sam being very interested. If he wanted, he could now take Bitcoin down and stop all that money flowing to the bad guys. <clears throat> Think of Islamic State. The next casualty is anonymity. A dominant player cannot possibly operate in a clandestine manner beyond the reach of law enforcement. This means it can't escape regulation. And the likelihood is that the government would destroy anonymity at a stroke by requiring that that player insist that users register themselves by providing photo ID, etc., etc. The next casualty is incentive compatibility. Well, I would simply make the point that the system never really was fully incentive compatible, but it's taken a, a considerable time for these problems to, to become clear. And the final domino would be the Bitcoin protocol. Because the protocol would no longer provide a discipline because the dominant player can rewrite it at will. And so just like a modern central bank, it would start throwing bits of the protocol out that it didn't like, like the bits that constrain the overissue of Bitcoin. And then the system would become an absolute monarchy, assuming that there was anybody left in the system by then. So the question that's crying out for an answer is why users of Bitcoin would continue to have any confidence in the system uh, when every single element of its value proposition had been kicked down. And I would assert that the obvious answer is that they wouldn't. And remember also that the willingness of any individual to accept Bitcoin is entirely dependent on confidence that other people will accept it. There's, there's no intrinsic value here. These are not like gold or tulips. Nor is there any rational reason to trust a dominant player. Trust comes from credible assurances, credible pre-commitment, the willingness to submit to account and all that sort of stuff. So the dominant player in the, the dominant mining pool is an outfit called GHash. It, and I'd like to give you a snapshot of its um, web page. Now it announces that it's the number one mining pool. It is trusted by 300k users and dates all the way back to late last year. <laughs> we, don't, we don't know who it, who's behind it or even where it's based. What we do know is it has a logo that looks like the hammer and sickle, and it has a bad reputation. It pointedly refuses to adhere to the principles of high-level Bitcoin idealism that the other players adhere to. So I find this all very reassuring. Now, this might be coincidence, forgive me if I'm unfair here, but um, it shares its name with this character. Ghash is a character from Ghostbusters. Now, this might be a coincidence, or it might be just 
that the guys behind have got good sense of humour. In the film, Jihash is a power-obsessed poltergeist who pulls the other ghost into a, a, a big mouth in his stomach. They get drained of their power, and he gets bigger and bigger. So by the time the Ghostbusters encounter him, he becomes too powerful to control. He was able to shoot beams from his eyes, pull up floorboards, disarm the team, and throw them around at will. So I put it to you that perhaps Jihash is a spectral entity in more ways than one. Now, here's my point. John Pierpont Morgan once said that the essence of banking is character. Someone I do not trust would not get any money from me on all the bonds in Christendom, he said. We don't see much of that character here. And if you really trust such an outfit, we have a bridge to sell you. In any case, there's no reason to want to trust such an outfit when you can use reputable systems like PayPal. So to, turn to return back to the storyline, the whole system eventually becomes a house of cards. There's nothing within the system to maintain confidence in the system. And anything, a scandal, a government attack, anything that could trigger a loss of confidence and bring the whole system down. So I would assert that the rational decision is to sell before that happens. If enough people think the same way, and I would say, why shouldn't they? Then expectations will become self-fulfilling. There'll be a stampede. The price of Bitcoin will collapse to zero, and the whole system will collapse. I would say it's only a question of when. And with the specter of Ghash hovering over the system, our guess is soon, but we might be wrong. Now, I dare say our message is a disappointment to Bitcoiners. I share that disappointment. It would have been great if Bitcoin could displace government money. However, Bitcoin's an experiment. Most experiments fail, and Bitcoin, I believe, will be another failed experiment. Now, I don't wish it so, but that's the way I think it is. Now, we make this prediction before the event, and if we're wrong, been wrong many times, we'll eat humble pie. But we don't think so. There's also... I mean, most Bitcoiners I've communicated to are very reasonable people, but there is a lunatic fringe. Their response to even the mildest criticism is, to be frank, to form at the mouth and hurl abuse at wicked disbelievers. To them, we simply say, oh, do grow up. And if you won't listen to us, take Voltaire's advice. To succeed in life, it's not enough to be stupid. You also have to have good manners. <laughs> <laughs> In the meantime, Bitcoin is a sell. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so I want to talk about uh, the market for cryptocurrencies more generally. So even if Kevin is right, uh, Bitcoin is not the entire story. There are lots of other cryptocurrencies that have improved on the Bitcoin model. Uh, but to introduce the topic, I actually want to begin with a little poem. In the past, money's value was judged with our teeth. We bitcoins to confirm they were real. Now a bitcoin's just data, no gold underneath. That's okay if it buys you a meal. This is the uh, first food truck in DC to accept bitcoin in uh, payment. Okay, to be honest, I photoshopped the We Accept Bitcoin sign on. <laughs> but they really do uh, accept Bitcoin. Uh, Hayek has been mentioned already, uh, and his pamphlet uh, or monograph, The Denationalization of Money, 
In the denationalization of money, Hayek didn't just advocate eliminating the legal barriers uh, to private currencies, but he speculated about what the market would look like. Uh, today, we don't have to just speculate about what the market would look like. We actually have a market, a market in which people issue private, irredeemable currencies. Uh, and we can see what model they're actually using and contrast it to some of the speculation of economists before this happened, uh, including, sadly, my own speculation, which turned out to be as wrong as everybody else's. Uh, so that's kind of the theme of my paper. Uh, but here's the market as of uh, two days ago. Uh, and one thing to note is that up in the far upper left-hand corner, there are now 500 currencies being tracked by this website, coinmarketcap.com. Uh, second thing to note is Bitcoin is by far the largest. As was already mentioned, their market cap, $4.4 billion uh, as of Tuesday. Uh, they have about 82.7% of the cryptocurrency market. But that's actually down quite a bit from where it was just 18 months ago. 18 months ago, it was about 96%. So these alternative cryptocurrencies, or altcoins as they're known collectively, are making inroads. The largest of them has is Ripple with about 2.6% of the market. Litecoin, which is one of the oldest of the altcoins, has about 2.2% of the market. Uh, but if we look at the market 18 months ago, oh, sorry, well, to put Bitcoin in perspective, we can also compare it to the size of various government fiat currencies. And it actually took a while to go to the, the central bank websites of these countries and figure out their monetary base. Thank goodness for Google Translate. Uh, but Bitcoin is somewhere between the size of the monetary base converted to US dollars at the current exchange rate of the Lithuanian Litas and the Guatemalan Quetzal, somewhere above the Costa Rican Cologne and the uh, Serbian Dinar. All right, so it's, it's a world currency. Uh, so here's the market uh, 18 months ago, and this is actually the oldest capture I could find from CoinMarketCap. Uh, the, on the Internet Archive, and you see that Bitcoin is about a quarter of the size it is now. Right? So there's been great growth in the market, and as I said, Bitcoin's market share then was about 96%, so there's been even bigger growth in the market as a whole, right? because Bitcoin's share is down, so the, we know the market as a whole is up more than fourfold. Now, uh, what Hayek predicted was not this kind of market. What Hayek predicted was a market in which the irredeemable monies that he expected to dominate would be, well, not really backed, uh, but the issuers would pledge to keep their purchasing power constant in terms of some price index. Not contractually agree to buy them back, but just promise. The problem with those kind of promises is if anybody believes them, you have an interest to issue more in that, of that money, and there's no legal penalty for doing so. So yes, you cash in your reputation, but if the profit for cashing in your reputation is big enough, people will do it. Right? So there's a time consistency problem, uh, the way economists put it. Now, we have a history of privately issued currency. I've been milking my dissertation for 30 years. No, no time to stop now. 
Traditionally, the way they solved the problem of getting people to put a positive value on a piece of paper that costs very little to print was a redemption contract. This is one of the prettiest ones I could find where the redemption contract was quite clear. Promises to pay the bearer on demand 10 yen in gold. So you present this note at the issuing bank, you get a certain amount of gold. Right? Very simple contract. It's a kind of money-back guarantee. It's a price guarantee. But that's not what Bitcoin does. Bitcoin takes a different model, which we knew about, but nobody thought was really relevant to money. Uh, the other model is you issue pieces of paper which claim to be art prints, <laughs> taste is subjective, uh, and you sell them as the artist at a price way above the cost of reproducing them. How do you get anybody to buy them? How do you convince them that next week they're not going to go on one of the online, sorry, one of the uh, TV shopping channels at a much lower price, right? Sort of mass market it at a lower price. Well, they're numbered. The signature is a phony. That, that doesn't do it. It's the numbering, right? This is number 1630 out of 3000. It's a quantity guarantee as opposed to a price guarantee. And the traditional thinking was that's fine for things that people enjoy hanging on their wall, but for a medium of exchange, you'd want something with a fixed nominal value, a fixed price uh, in terms of some basic money, right? But this is the model, the quantity guarantee that Bitcoin has remarkably applied to a money-like asset. And all the other cryptocurrencies do the same thing. They, they offer a quantity guarantee. And it's not just uh, sort of written in pencil in the corner. <laughs> it's programmed into the protocol, and the protocol is publicly observable, and the ledger that Jim mentioned is publicly observable. So people know that the quantity uh, limit is being observed. So here's what the market looks like uh, today again, but I've added some dingbats. I've added some uh, icons to it to indicate sort of some of the things that are going on in this market. Uh, the blue stars represent four profit enterprises that have entered this market, and this is new. You don't find any of these four 18 months ago. 18 months ago, Bitcoin and all the others were nonprofit projects, experiments, trial balloons, sort of fun projects. Uh, now, of course, Bitcoin has spread through the application of the profit motive. There are lots of firms now making Bitcoin easier to use, easier for merchants to accept, providing uh, sort of entryways and exit ways from Bitcoin. But Bitcoin itself is a nonprofit project. Uh, these guys, number two, four, six, and eight, are all for-profit projects, and they don't work using the Bitcoining mining, uh, the Bitcoin mining protocol. They have a bunch of coins issued at the beginning, which are owned by the entrepreneurs. The entrepreneurs then distribute some of them, hope that they catch on, uh, and that they and they work hard to promote the use of their currencies and hope to profit by a rising value of the coins they retain. Right? So that's the, the profit model. Uh, and that gives them you know, much more of an interest, it's not just a hobby, much more of an interest in promoting practical uses for these uh, currencies. And the main uses they're promoting are use in international remittances, right? where they're much cheaper than the legacy systems of Western Union uh, and, and similar uh, 
telegraphic transfer systems. Uh, bit, that Ripple uh, provides international remittances. Bitcoin X, uh, sorry, BitShares X is providing a platform for digital derivative contracts. It's yet to launch, but there's a lot of anticipation about it. Uh, Next and Counterparty are doing similar things. It's not just a coin, it's a whole platform for uh, digital trading. Uh, the other altcoins, the ones that were also developed as nonprofit projects, are all faster than Bitcoin at verifying transactions. That's what the little winged foot indicates. Right? So they, Bitcoin takes 10 minutes to verify a transaction. That's not very good for point of sale transfer. So these guys are all faster. Some of them are down to one minute uh, or less. Ripple is almost instantaneous. And the next symbol to the left, the shield, indicates that the problem that Kevin was talking about, the problem of 51% of the miners attacking the currency, uh, that's been recognized and protocols have been rewritten to deal with that. So all the ones with the shield don't use the Bitcoin so-called proof of work uh, system where you need miners. They either have what they call a proof of stake system or they have some kind of consensus system that operates without creating economies of scale. So it's not going to encourage the kind of pooling. There's no reason to pool with other miners the way there is with Bitcoin. Uh, and then the last icon, which is attached to Darkcoin, uh, is that Darkcoin provides more privacy. And there are others like Darkcoin that provide more privacy, but they're not in the top 10. Uh, and the idea is that the Bitcoin ledger is open. Anybody can see the addresses that have received and spent Bitcoin. Uh, Darkcoin obscures the identity of the payers and recipients. Uh, so if Bitcoin crashes, <laughs> Uh, these are the up-and-comers, the, the profit-driven firms that I think will uh, survive. They use a different protocol. Um, and, you know, it's too soon to tell how many of them will make a splash. Um, thanks. There are also niche-marketed altcoins. There's a whole group of them that... Uh, <coughs> offer to serve a particular market, which is the market for legal marijuana dispensaries. I don't know if you know this, but the Obama administration has been discouraging banks from opening accounts for marijuana dispensaries. Even though they're legal in the states where they operate, they can't get a bank account, so they can only deal in cash. They can't accept credit cards because the, the Department of Justice won't let them. Uh, so cryptocurrencies to the rescue. They can accept payment in a non-cash form if they accept one of these uh, crypto coins. So here's the uh, price pattern of Bitcoin over the last year. And it's had its ups and downs, but it seems to be holding steady. It doesn't seem to be a bubble, uh, to use a technical term. It's got some support under it, hence the columns. And I speculate in the paper about where the support comes from. Uh, it comes from the affinity people have for this project. I mean, they like it. I, I, I quote somebody on a Reddit page saying, I own it because I like what it stands for. Right? And that provides a certain amount of support. But I think more importantly, uh, 
looking toward the future, there is the prospect that this will be a low-cost money transmitting method. I mean, that depends on the cooperation of the regulators, not uh, quashing it. But there is that prospect that, you know, if you want to send money cheaply, you need to acquire one of these coins. However, there are other coins that have been bubbles. And we can see that on coin market cap quite clearly. Uh, and these are coins that were once prominent. So here, 18 months ago, they were prominent. Here's Frycoin, Megacoin, Terracoin, Barbecue Coin. <laughs> They've all basically crashed. They haven't gone literally to zero, but they've lost 99%, 98 or more percent of their value. A little later, Mooncoin, Cloakcoin, but here's Bitcoin. It doesn't show that kind of pattern. Uh, so I, I try to compare the way this market looks to the way beforehand economists thought it might look, but I also contrast it with some silly things that economists today are saying. And the identity of these economists is not important, uh, but trust me, they're famous. I cite them in the paper, so if you get the, this is your, come on to actually look at the paper, you'll find out who these are. Uh, these two complaints are prominent. One, Bitcoin is a monopoly. Two, Bitcoin has too much competition. <laughs> I think they're both wrong, actually. So the idea that Bitcoin's a monopoly, what's the, it, it does have, it is the market leader, it created the market, so it's not surprising that it's the biggest, but it's surrounded by competitors, and they are eroding its market share. Uh, I guess my time's up. Uh, the second worry is that there are so many competitors that will drive the value of all altcoins to zero. And to me, that's as silly as saying, if the monetary authorities in Zimbabwe issue a lot of Zimbabwe dollars, they're a lot like U.S. dollars, so that'll drive the value of U.S. dollars to zero. No, there's an exchange rate between the two that's going to adjust. It's not going to drive down the value of uh, Bitcoin. So thank you very much. Well, I'm amazed how the three of us on this panel, uh, amazed at how different all of our presentations are. <laughs> Wish I had the other guys. <laughs> okay, so given the title of the conference in this session, uh, uh, it seemed to me that we're supposed to be discussing the likelihood that the Bitcoin system will replace the Federal Reserve as the U.S. main provider of money and uh, also, we should consider the desirability of such a transformation. So um, I, I'll start off by considering how far this revolution has progressed to date by uh, looking at the average volume of transactions conducted uh, per time period by means of Bitcoin and comparing it to recent values with the total volume of uh, dollar payments in the United States. Um, so uh, I've read a lot of very good articles in uh, trying to learn about this system. One that uh, I thought was particularly good was written by Francois Velda of the Chicago Fed, in which he uh, reported some statistics. This was in late 2013, uh, showing the average volume of Bitcoin transactions per minute to be less than four-tenths of one percentage point of average dollar transactions per minute, per minute 
except this wasn't total dollar transactions, but it was only the subset conducted by means of Visa credit card payments. So now in the month since the uh, publication of his article, the uh, Bitcoin payments uh, volume has grown, but their uh, quantitative extent would seem to remain negligible from any macroeconomic perspective. Uh, so just to sort of see if things were changing, a couple of months ago I, I uh, looked up these, uh, these same values and uh, found that uh, it was just about the same. Th this was looking at uh, statistics put out by the coinometrics.com uh, website. And so I got three-tenths of 1%. Uh, and I also compared the stocks of, of these things um, using currency, comparing the stock of Bitcoin value to the currency plus demand deposits as a measure of the uh, standard money supply. And this time the ratio was uh, a little, was just under uh, three-tenths of 1%. The same order of magnitude for all of these things. <clears throat> okay, another way to express the point that that Bitcoin uh, at this time is, is not a quantitatively important uh, money is to just, you know, reflect a little while on the economist standard definition of money, i.e. as an entity that serves as a medium of exchange, store of value, and medium of account. Um, and we have to also recognize in the meantime that in developed economies, money does not rank highly as a store of value. For instance, in the U.S., um, during the first quarter of 2014, uh, comparing the uh, checkable deposits plus currency holdings by U.S. households and nonprofit organizations to their assets, uh, I found that uh, the money holdings are approximately one one-hundredth of uh, households' assets. So that, that emphasizes that it's the medium of exchange role that's the primary attribute that, that we have in mind in defining money. But uh, a, an important qualifier that's often made explicit is that it has to be generally acceptable medium of exchange. And by that standard, uh, Bitcoin certainly don't uh, at present qualify uh, as money. Now, none of the foregoing arguments rule out the possibility that Bitcoin will become a major or even the main medium of exchange in the future. But uh, as of today, it seems likely that for law-abiding U.S. citizens, the practical attractions are as uh, Bitcoins are primarily as an investment with, with very high volatility. Uh, investors like that, that it's got a lot of volatility, although that hurts as, um, as uh, from other respects. Now, as a, and secondly, as a means of participating in an intellectually fascinating avant-garde and potentially revolutionary social experiment. Okay, now I had a section on anonymity, but I don't think it's worth taking the time for it. So my next object is to consider the possibility that while quantitatively unimportant is present, 
Bitcoin will in the foreseeable future uh, become a major and perhaps main medium of exchange. And at this point of time, I'm going to work under the assumption that that development is not thwarted by legal actions of the U.S. government, and I'll return to that possibility uh, afterwards. A natural way to argue that Bitcoin will grow is to identify some of its major advantages. And in this point, uh, at this, in this context, I found a, an article by Mark Andreessen uh, very um, useful in the sense that he was very positive and optimistic. And first, he emphasized the reduction in certain transaction costs that Bitcoin could bring about and gave, uh, as an example, the case of, of international remittance. I'll read his words for a minute. Every day, hundreds of millions of low-income people go to work in hard jobs in foreign countries to make money to send back to their families in their home countries, over $400 billion worth annually. And every day, banks and payment companies extract mind-boggling fees, up to 10%, to send this money. Switching to Bitcoin, which charges little or no fees, these remittance payments will therefore, uh, would therefore raise the quality of life of migrant workers and their families uh, significantly. Moreover, he says, Bitcoin can be a powerful force to bring a much larger number of people around the world into the modern economic system and thereby can be a powerful catalyst to extend the benefits of modern economic system to virtually everyone uh, on the planet. That's a good point. Another point of his concerns uh, micropayments, very small payments, which have never been feasible despite 20 years of attempts because it's not effective to run small payments through the existing credit debit banking fit systems whose fee structure makes that uh, unprofitable. By contrast, he says, bitcoins have the, have the nice property of infinite divisibility down to eight decimal places. So you can specify an arbitrarily small amount of money, like a thousandth of a penny, and send it to anyone in the world uh, for free or, or, or nearly free. And he um, mentions a couple of examples and states that another potential use of Bitcoin micropayments is to fight spam. Future email systems and social networks could refuse to accept incoming messages unless they were accompanied with tiny amounts of Bitcoin, tiny enough not to matter to the sender, but large enough to deter spammers, who today can send uncounted billions of spam messages for free with impunity. Uh, to, to me, this really, you know, this appeals. This is the type of use <laughs> that seems likely to appeal to economists, many of whom I believe are appalled by the view evidently held by, the, by many internet developers and guardians that the use of internet should be entirely free with respect to the sending of email messages. You know, economists say this kind of thing to each other all the time, I believe. Uh, okay, now let me talk a little bit about the programmed growth rate. Uh, as most descriptions of the Bitcoin system explain, the total stock is outstanding, is programmed to grow automatically at a rate that's current 25 every 10 minutes and will be halved every four years, implying that the stock will as asymptotically approach 21 million Bitcoins. Thus, if real growth continues and Bitcoin becomes the dominant currency, 
then the Bitcoin price of goods will at some point have to begin a continuous fall. Uh, this plan could be uh, modified, if I understand correctly, by the five-man development team that Bitcoin has, which could in principle alter the schedule of growth rates. And thinking about that, I would say there's some interest from the perspective of monetary economics to consider what a desirable rate of growth would be uh, for the stock. And uh, suppose it became the, the, the dominant medium of exchange. What would be the socially optimal rate of growth? Well, if, it, if there's only a negligible resource cost difference for different rates of growth, not for having the system at all, but for just having different rates of growth, one could use Milton Friedman's famous argument regarding the uh, optimal inflation rate in, in, in this context. That is, one could argue that the optimal money creation rate should be that which drives the nominal money rate of interest to zero, since lower rates of interest lead economic agents to hold larger money stocks in real terms, thereby providing more real transactions facilitating services for their holders. Since there are no tangible costs of producing these additional services, it's socially optimal to increase their magnitude to a satiation level. So applying this line of argument to an economy with a Bitcoin medium of exchange, we get the Friedman result again. The optimal inflation rate is the negative of the real rate of interest, which makes the nominal interest rate equal to zero. Uh, I should mention uh, that George Selgin has used a different line of argument to reach the same uh, optimal inflation rate. Okay, the following line of argument suggests that if the Bitcoin development team can adopt various rules for the creation of Bitcoins and have them adopted by the Bitcoin community, then it's possible that this development team could lead the way into to adoption of an activist rule or to one that would generate inflation. So it seems that the ultimate fundamental difference between a highly developed Bitcoin system and our current Federal Reserve-based paper money arrangement is political, that the tangible resource costs of creating the medium of exchange are extremely low in both cases. Now, one might uh, be able to argue that a Bitcoin-type system would be less subject to political forces that are inimical to price-level stability but on the other hand, one might be impressed by a statement that Velde made in his article, quote, it's hard to imagine a world where the main currency is based on an extremely complex, complex computer code understood by only a few people and controlled by even fewer without any accountability, arbitration, or recourse. Okay, so at this point, I think it's time to... Thank you. Remember uh, that the U.S. Constitution clearly intends, uh, as in Article 1, Sections 8 and 10, for the nation's monetary system to be based on gold and or silver. Since there's nothing in the existing amendments to the Constitution that suggests any change in that arrangement, uh, one has to think about how, the, it, how we can possibly have what we have. Uh, where, from where, where do we get the inconsistency of, of today's reality with the Constitution specification? Well, that, that change can be uh, traced to Supreme Court rulings in the uh, 1871 cases of uh, Knox versus Lee and Parker versus Davis um, that, uh, that uh, came ab ab 
about uh, after, after the Civil War uh, pertaining to the greenbacks. Now, uh, I've written a short paper discussing this astonishing uh, episode. In doing so, I, I drew very heavily on earlier writings by Richard Timberlake that are beautifully and extensively developed in a book published in 2013 by the Cato Institute. In thinking about the future of Bitcoin then, a major question is whether the US government will or will not take legal steps to, present, to prevent its growth and possible dominance. Now, a big, well-written, long discussion of this matter was uh, provided by uh, Ruben Grinberg um, in 2011 in, in, in a law journal called the Hastings Science and Technology Law, law Review. He observes that the United States Constitution has nothing to say about private parties creating money, which is right. And he states that the relevant existent federal statutes are the Stamp Payments Act of 1862, plus an assortment of federal statutes concerning counterfeiting. He concludes that the first of these uh, is unlikely that the act would form the basis for a federal attack on Bitcoin. He says this is a 150-year-old statute, statute that has outlived its usefulness, uh, outlived in the sense that it's talking about uh, conditions that are no longer uh, relevant. Uh, so what about the statutes regarding counterfeiting? His discussion is informative, but all in all doesn't leave, uh, doesn't leave this reader, reader i.e. me, with much confidence regarding the major issue at hand, wh which is whether the U.S. government would permit control of U.S. monetary management to pass from the Federal Reserve to a system not under its dominance. In this regard, Selgin states that he finds it difficult to imagine a government actually embracing the idea and more, uh, where did the other four go? Okay, I'm gonna skip to my last point, which is one page. In conclusion, I would like to mention an unlikely but intriguing possibility that could arise from the existing system. It is that it seems rather likely that the U.S. government will take legal steps to constrain or banish the Bitcoin system. In this case, it is possible that any legal attack by the federal branch of, of the government on Bitcoin would have to begin by establishing the government's responsibility for management of the um, United States monetary system. But given the explicit provisions of the Constitution, Doing so would apparently need to rely upon these Supreme Court decisions that I mentioned earlier, uh, which served to overturn the post-Civil War decision earlier in Hepburn versus Griswold. And given the absolutely illogical nature of the decisions in those cases, as detailed by Timberlake, a competently developed counterargument should be able to yield a reversal of their rulings, which are the rulings that permitted the development of today's arrangements, and which uh, are arrangements that appear to be, uh, whether one likes them or not, fundamentally inconsistent with the Constitution.
We'll now turn to Q&A. I want to take the moderator's prerogative to, to ask the first question. I imagine there will be, be plenty of questions and much discussion. Luckily, we have a, a good amount of time for it. Professor Dowd, I was shocked by your presentation, shocked, because I'm quite certain that the image on ghash.io's website is a hammer and pickaxe. It's not a hammer and sickle. You know, mining, it's what, it's what they use. That draws into question everything you said to us. <laughs> I think it's worth, it's worth, and it's, 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 it's strange, and I wasn't prepared, prepared for it necessarily at a monetary conference to talk a little bit about open source software development because that's an essential element of, of the Bitcoin protocol and many of the other uh, Bitcoin uh, alternatives. Open source software development is conducted in the open. That is, people who have the technical sophistication are able to access the code, review the code, add to the code, based on their ability to influence others in that community of the merits of their work. So in Bitcoin, just like in any other uh, open source software development project. There's a there's a there might be a pyramidal shaped community in, in that there are a small number of highly expert people who devote all of their time to Bitcoin development. But but branching out from that, I branch out this way rather than that way. In the power structure, uh, the power structures in open source versus uh, 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 fiat currency are different. Uh, in that in in open source software development. Anyone proposing a change to the software has to convince a rather large audience of people that what they're doing is meritorious. And they have to convince other people because adopting a new version of the software that, that runs Bitcoin and, in, and implements the Bitcoin protocol is something that you have to convince others to do. If you're going to successfully change how the Bitcoin protocol works, you have to convince more than 50% of the operators of nodes, if I'm not mistaken, to adopt a software change. And then, so that draws into question whether a dominant player can actually rewrite the code at will, which is the sort of end, end, end state that uh, Professor Dowd has talked about, the worst, the worst end state. But uh, so, Alia, spend more time on open source to, to understand the, the underlying mechanics and, and power structures and incentives underneath the Bitcoin protocol. I don't think, we'll, I don't think we have the audience or the or the, the brain power here to actually get too deeply into it. But please, let's, uh, let's go into questions. We've got one on the, on the aisle up here. I recognize Mr. Bert Ely. Uh, thank you, uh, Bert Ely, uh, banking consultant and uh, Bitcoin skeptic. Um, the thing that, um, uh, that strikes me about Bitcoin is the enormous amount of resources that have gone into the creation of this, uh, not only in terms of all the energy that is being uh, consumed to, uh, to mine uh, Bitcoins, but also all the human effort and time. Time has uh, value. So my question is this, how is anybody going to make money in the Bitcoin game other than through price appreciation of Bitcoin? But if there is not price appreciation continually, or as we've seen recently, price depreciation, uh, why would anybody invest their time and other resources 
uh, in Bitcoin if there is no other way to make money on Bitcoin other than through um, uh, price appreciation or, to use uh, kind of a verboten word with Bitcoin, having to charge transaction fees just like banks do in handling other types of payments. Well, thank you, uh, both gentlemen. First of all, um, with respect to your comment about the hammer and sickle, um, it sure looked like the hammer and sickle to me, but um, I do make a promise. When I go back home, I will go and see the optician. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's just a kind of, as a, as a capitalist, a just really reassuring symbol that I thought maybe you want to price, a symbol that wasn't quite so Soviet would have been a bit more reassuring. But jokes aside, my, my point was simply the, the, the essence of banking is character, having a stake in the community, being submittable to account and stuff like that. That's my criticism of GHash. About, about the, my fundamental criticism of Bitcoin, which I didn't think I'd be saying this three months ago, is simply that it has a market structure of a natural monopoly. So the pure economics, I believe, make it unsustainable. Um, as for the, the development team, I'm on the, on the, on the uh, crypto finance uh, uh, mailing list, and those guys are super bright. And there's all sorts of ongoing live discussions about Byzantine generals' problems and all sorts of complicated stuff that most of it is way over my head. Byzantine generals' problems. It's basically how you, um, you have a decentralized system that can be relied upon to deliver the right, the right outcome. Um, so I, I, I think what's happening, and going to, to, to Mr. Ely's point, there's a commitment to a Bitcoin community because these guys really passionately believe in what they're doing. But they only get a, a positive return, I'm oversimplifying, if the price keeps going up. But whether the price goes up or not depends on the demand. And as you correctly point out, the price is falling. But I think they've got so much invested in this that they're determined to try and uh, you know, make the best of it. My hope is that one of the alts without a mining protocol might uh, you know, be the next generation of these currencies. So thank you. Yeah, a short answer to Bert. Um, if you're the marginal miner, you earn a normal rate of return to the investment in mining equipment. Right? There's, there's no spectacular profits, but it doesn't require it to keep appreciating for you to earn that. If you, you know, get a return by uh, getting paid in the bitcoins that you mine. Uh, for other people, the attraction can be just as someone suggested. <laughs> Volatility is fun, I guess Ben said that. Uh, but the future of it relies on it being a transaction medium. So people acquire Bitcoin in order to make remittances, in order to make purchases with it, not as an investment. I'll add just one note before taking the next question, that, that uh, a fee structure is built into uh, the Bitcoin protocol. You can add fees to payments now if you wish to. Over time, as the rate of Bitcoin creation drops, Fees will rise in importance, and so there will be a continued way to reward miners for what they've they've added to the, the ecosystem. Uh, right behind Mr. Ely is, an, is a is a hand that you'd recognize from Welcome Back, Cotter. Oh, oh, oh! <laughs> Please, <laughs> Warren Coates, and my question follows on immediately the discussion of fees, as as you just noted. Uh, Bitcoin production will end in a decade or two. Therefore, the only way of remunerating mining will be through fees and so on. 
So the relevant question, I, th I think, in terms of whether this particular technology, or this particular protocol, has a cost advantage as a means of payment over others, and there are a whole slew of new innovations coming along uh, to lower the cost of making payments with U.S. dollars or other established currencies. The, the relevant question is, what is your assessment of the cost prospects when they have to be fully remunerated with fees for this particular technology versus the many other technologies that are coming along with traditional currencies? Could I answer that? Sure. Please. Um, just two points. I mean, I think this is exactly the right way to look at Bitcoin and system. And because it's, it's inefficient with competitive mining, I, I don't believe it would withstand competition against a closed wall systems such as eGold or Coeptis or any of these, or, pay, or, or PayPal. So that I think the remittances issue is very important, but it will go to other competitors which are more competitive than Bitcoin. And I'd like to say one other comment. It's been repeated several times that mining will end by about 2041. That's not true. It's, um, it's often repeated. It, and I, I, I believe it's not true. I mean, I, uh, I think it's one of these uh, urban myths that's repeated. I've repeated it myself in something I wrote in the summer, and I could kick myself for that. But if you actually do a spreadsheet and you just halve it every four years, you will find that by 2041, there'll still be a significant amount of production. I think you mean 2140. 2140, yeah. Right, 120. Yeah. I, yeah, the, yeah. the numbers that yeah. are, are yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, there, that yeah. it'll Sorry. be 2140 when the, when the last yes, Bitcoin that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, 126 yeah. years from now. Yeah, yeah. Cool. that's right, 126, yeah. yeah. How about here on the aisle on this side? I understood one of the speakers mentioned there were about 85,000 users mm -hmm. of uh, Bitcoin. What's the profile of a person who uses, person or entity, that uses Bitcoin? And um, how many different countries are represented by the users? Well, the, the, pro the profile is very interesting. I think that there's work by, uh, is it Sarah Merkel-John in California? but. Most of the transactions are very, very low transactions. Like when I got some Bitcoin myself and I sent uh, three, three cents worth to my, to my Bitcoin wallet, a lot of people are doing that. A lot of people are sitting on uh, large amounts of Bitcoin that haven't been spent. And so the actual, what you might say is bona fide transactions, are, they're actually much lower than people. It's an individual you're a consumer, not your business to business. Yes, yes, that's correct. <laughs> well, that I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you that. Yeah, please. Um, I, I, oh, go ahead. Okay, let me. I would uh, answer that by saying that I think most Bitcoin users tend to be libertarians. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what I know about this is what I read in the press, uh, and there have been a couple of interesting stories recently. One, there's an Bitcoin-only cafe in Prague that just opened, and they're, you know, very much alternative lifestyle people. Um, the other was an article about the remittance industry in the Philippines. The Philippines is the third biggest market for remittances after China and India. That is, overseas workers sending money back home. 
And a lot of times these workers, they're working in Singapore, they're working in Hong Kong, they're working in the Gulf states. They're unbanked. But there are markets where they can go and fork over cash and have Bitcoin sent to their folks back home. And it's cheaper than using uh, the established payment systems. Now, Bitcoin is peer-to-peer. So if you if you're online and you've got Bitcoin on your hard drive, you basically can send it at nearly zero cost to somebody. The, the cost involved for people re- using it for remittances who don't already have it is buying the Bitcoin. And then at the other end, somebody in the Philippines who doesn't want Bitcoin but they want local currency has to sell it. So there is that bid-ask spread. And right now the market for Bitcoin is not as thick as the market for other currencies. So the bid-ask spreads are fairly large. And so that's why everybody hasn't immediately already switched to remitting in Bitcoin. But that will come down as the markets get thicker. I'll, I'll add in, in partial answer as well, the, the, the Bitcoin blockchain, the global public ledger, provides a good, deal of, good bit of data about use of Bitcoin, but you can't tell who it is, where they are, what their purposes are. Uh, in general, you see a lot of use in the, in the U.S. and in the West uh, use, that is investment, people buying, anticipating an increase in value in the future. Uh, increasingly, you'll see it adopted, I think, uh, in, in parts of the world where Internet access is good enough, that's essential, and financial services are bad enough to, to, to bring people in. Yeah. But we'll, we'll go to another question. And up uh, toward the back, second in from the fourth row from the back, <laughs> just hand up. The, ba- the light is so bad, he looks a little bit like Bill Murray. Uh, I'm not Bill Murray. My name is Ed Bartholomew. And my question is about the, the security of the actual assets. Of course, you've heard stories of, of Bitcoins being stolen, but I, I'm actually curious about government taking the money, particularly when, you know, there are a lot of stories recently about, you know, police just stop people in their cars and they take cash on them because they can assume that it's used for something bad or the IRS will seize bank accounts because of the pattern of deposits suggests something's bad without any any criminal case. It seems to me cryptocurrencies are particularly vulnerable to it, that that a government could just say the fact that you have Bitcoin suspect you're up to no good and we'll take it and you prove that you weren't doing anything bad. How how likely do you think that is and how technically easy would that be? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a real danger. Um, I think the anonymity of Bitcoin is much overrated. And I think the uh, decryption ability to to, to identify uh, the, the real users behind Bitcoin transactions is much greater than people imagine. Um, and we already saw this with Silk Road when the government seized uh, Dread Pirate Robert's account, and he hasn't been convicted yet. Uh, they've already sold his Bitcoins off. So I think it's a very real danger. Yeah, if I think that can happen. But having a Bitcoin in your car is not quite so obvious as having a box of $100 bills in your car, right? So... <laughs> It's a little easier to hide. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we had a question from Bitcoin Girl, who for having made a video about Bitcoin, gets to the front of the line when I see her hand This isn't up. actually a question. This is just uh, uh, adding on to that gentleman's point. The highest volume of uh, Bitcoin transactions comes from online gambling sites. And that is because, you know, you're able to send micro payments so people can actually spend a a fraction of of a Bitcoin and use it in gambling. And it's also um, fantastic because when the government is outlawing uh, gambling sites and, you know, they really can't actually um, 
focus their attention on any company uh, to shut down these sites. They actually have to put pressure on the intermediaries and that's how they control online gambling. Now, when you have Bitcoin, you actually don't have any of these intermediaries. It, Bitcoin, is, as these gentlemen have already said, you know, operates simultaneously on thousands of computers all over the world. So you can't shut it down. So this is a wonderful tool for freedom, in my opinion, that is allowing things like, uh, like gambling sites. Not that I agree with gambling, but I do agree with people's ability to spend their money where they want to spend it. It's notable also that uh, that Bitcoin-based gambling sites can prove the fact that they pay out in, in the uh, proportion that they say they do. Uh, in parallel, Bitcoin-based financial services providers can and some do uh, issue cryptographic proof of reserves rather than relying on their accounting uh, department mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to sh- prove to their, uh, their accounting firm with the oversight of government that the money is actually there. Uh, they, they have the potential to prove the existence of the money in their in their Bitcoin coffers uh, on the aisle over here. Thank you. Uh, I'm Ruben Grinberg. Uh, thanks for the shout out, Professor McCallum. I'm now an associate at uh, Davis Polk and the Financial Institutions Group. Uh, my question is about um, uh, Bitcoin and how it will coexist. Uh, most of these uh, arguments we hear from an economics perspective are um, using traditional uh, uh, avenues of exploring um, uh, uh, currencies and uh, what policy is best. Um, but I think realistically, Bitcoin or, and other cryptocurrencies are going to coexist with the dollar, with other fiat currencies. Um, so what does that, what does that mean for, for these analyses? What, what do we need to think about? Um, I, I discovered the, I'm going to ask, answer in a roundabout way. Uh, I think the, a big question uh, that was raised in, in your writing is uh, whether the government, whether the U.S. government is going to try to just stamp out Bitcoin. And um, it seems to me that it would be undesirable for that to happen. It would be it would be nice for uh, I, I don't think Bitcoin's going to take over the world, but it would be nice to have it as an alternative for uh, people who want to uh, transact in, in those ways. And uh, if it if it if it serves as a non-inflationary uh, unit of uh, medium of account, well, that's very good too. Uh, that would put uh, even you know if we still have the Federal Reserve uh, twenty years from now, which I'm afraid we will. This would impose a lot of uh, discipline on the Federal Reserve. Now, it, it's very interesting to me to note that the president of the uh, one of the Federal Reserve Banks, I think it was Cleveland, it'll come back to me in a minute, uh, has actually gone on record, no, it was St. Louis, uh, as supporting, as being very supportive of uh, this idea that, uh, that uh, Bitcoin would survive in a, uh, in a way that didn't take over an enormous part of our, of our transactions, but... Uh, continue to exist and uh, would be a useful uh, anti-inflationary discipline on the government. That's what he thinks is likely to happen and uh, what he thinks would be desirable. And I must say, I think that's a very nice, uh, that's a very agreeable thing uh, from my perspective, too. Yeah, your question raises two issues. Uh, There's a legal issue and there's a marketing issue. So in a world of dollar denominated payments being the dominant system, 
to get Bitcoin into wider use, people have to come up with friendlier ways to access it for people who are not tech savvy. And that's happening. There are a lot of firms like BitPay uh, that are making it easy for merchants to accept Bitcoin without ever owning Bitcoin. Uh, and there are payment devices that allow people to have Bitcoin on smart cards and other sort of low-tech devices. Uh, on the legal aspect, the biggest threat is through money laundering laws or anti-money laundering laws, right? If, if know your customer is imposed on all intermediaries, that means that the remittance service has to be peer-to-peer, -peer, and that creates uh, difficulties for people who, when they receive the Bitcoin, want to sell it for local currency. Question over here. Hello, my name is Cynthia Gaten. I'm an attorney and I actually teach engineers. And my interest in Bitcoin was the push against cash, use of cash um, in transactions. So I'm not necessarily uh, afraid of the anonymity aspect of things because, of course, cash is anonymous. You can make purchases um, without anybody tracking you and push toward using uh, credit cards. Of course, there's more ways of uh, being sold more products online than there ever were. So Bitcoin was very interesting to me from that perspective. And I, the other aspect of it in teaching engineers, I have a lot of gamers in my classes. And I was interested if, because I didn't hear any uh, relationship between Bitcoin and the gaming community because gamers are used to using virtual money in their transactions um, and having come from a computer science background over the, over the years, this is the, this is an exciting area from a wild west perspective. And for the internet, the internet used to be really a lot of fun. <laughs> it's not so much anymore. Um, but I'm wondering as, as you look into the future, there are, there's a generation of people who are used to virtual money being used for their uh, interactions on games and is Bitcoin kind of tracking that same, in some respects, demographic? Well, just briefly, I, I agree. It is there's a huge demographic element in this. Um, and I think it's probably fair to say everybody that I know who's older than me was very skeptical of Bitcoin. And, any, and most of the people I know are under 30 are very, very gung-ho with a few exceptions. But there's a huge demographic element. Um, and I think Bitcoin is riding that, you know, IT type thing. And I, it could well be people are telling me that the next thing will be the blockchain, um, you know, as a means of validating transactions and stuff like that. And nothing I say is against the blockchain. I mean, we just don't know. But I think there's a lot going on. It's very interesting. Professors White McCallum? Take, we'll, take we'll take one more question. We're, we're edging up against, you know, conversations about Gamergate, which is the last thing we want to do. And, and if, you, if you don't know what that is, you're too old. Uh, let's take the gentleman on the, on the aisle just here. Sorry to all the others. Please wait, please wait for the microphone. We're, we're streaming online, have many viewers. Terry so. Tahir is my name. And I have been asking this question for two years, and I still have not got an answer that a dummy like me can understand. What is a Bitcoin? That's I, I know what a silver eagle is, but I want to know what a Bitcoin is. 
That's a terrific way to wind it up. Let's have each of our panelists tell us what a Bitcoin is. Well, I think, Professor Dowd. I think Larry White explained it very well. You take an old silver coin and you bite it. That's a Bitcoin. <laughs> it's uh, an entry. It's a bookkeeping entry. Uh, it's a string of digits, basically. It, it's a piece of data that is uniquely identified so that it can't be duplicated and respent without, except through the verification system, which prevents it from being uh, counterfeited. We have reached time. Thank you for your questions and your interest. Uh, we'll, we'll proceed to the next panel, I believe. With, uh, we'll, take, we'll have a break uh, now. There's plenty of time throughout the day to discuss the issues. My last thought on Bitcoin is that the market climbs a wall of worry, and other times the market should go down. Thank you very much. And thanks to Professor McCallum, Professor White, Professor Dowd.